Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Benko, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is uh, Lindsay Benko, and I'm a professor of uh, American Literature and Culture at the University of Saskatchewan uh, in Canada. And I have long been very interested in, um, uh, you know, the middle of the 20th century and, and this, um, this very important um, uh, piece of technology, the atomic bomb, and uh, the, the very important uh, events surrounding its, its development and, and deployment. And so um, I guess that's what we're mostly going to talk about today. I'm curious if I'm the only person that reached out to you to do a podcast about Oppenheimer after that movie came out, because I feel like everyone had an interest at that point. I mean, I you, you mentioned you mentioned you saw it um, when we were talking a little bit off air. Is it that the best representation for Oppenheimer? I mean, was it an actual history? I'm into historical things like as accurate as possible. I don't like all the fantasy stuff, like just give me the real information. You know, you don't need to clear cut it or leave out certain things to make it fit better for Hollywood or their image. But I want the actual information. When I saw that, I thought it wasn't glamored up a whole bunch. Like it wasn't really Hollywooded up. But at the same time, is that who Oppenheimer was? Was he this person that seems like at the end they gave him this? vibe of being like he was being kind of targeted by a certain individual in the government and it was kind of like reversing what they were supporting all this time was him building this bomb yeah okay i mean that's a great question um so one of the things that we i think that we always have to keep in mind when we're talking about um history on film uh, or history in books or uh history on podcasts or history on any any form um, is that there's always that challenge of trying to figure out what's what's the reality of history and what is representation. And when I say what is representation, I don't mean what has been made up or what has been fabricated or what has been obfuscated or what's been hidden. I, I, I mean, I think we all sort of read history books with the um, assumption, a uh, kind of good faith assumption that the writer of this book is trying his or her very best to get across the history as it as it really happened. Um, but unless, you know, we were there firsthand, and there's there aren't too many people around anymore who um, who, who knew Oppenheimer firsthand, um, certainly not not people of, of my generation or your generation. Um, so what we rely on is history, and, and we rely on the process of historiography, the act of writing history. And, and obviously, like I say, we have to we have to assume historians are doing their work in good faith, and, and the vast majority of them are. Um, but they are basing their work on documents. They're basing their work on stories that other people tell them. They're basing their work on um, uh, cultural ephemera, things that things like like postcards and and diaries and all of these uh, it's uh, tangible but also kind of intangible objects. And how we presume to um, parse the difference between history as it really happened and a representation of history becomes a really, really complicated question. So when you ask me, you know, is this the best representation of Oppenheimer uh, on film? And, and, and that's, that's a great question because there are actually quite a lot of representations of Oppenheimer on film and at least half a dozen or more. When we say which one is the best, um, I, I think implicit in that question is, as you say, a direct access to history or, or a film that gives us history as it really is, history as it, is, as, as it really was. And I, I mean, I think that's an important criteria. I don't necessarily know if it's the only criteria for determining whether or not something is the best representation of Oppenheimer. In terms of what I know of the history, and I've read many um, books of history uh, about Oppenheimer and about the Manhattan Project and the development of the atomic bomb, 
it's, it's pretty accurate. It's, it, it shows a fair bit of fidelity to, to history. And I say that knowing that that question of fidelity, is this real history? Is this the real Oppenheimer? Is really, really important to a lot of viewers. And I, and I, I totally get that. And I agree with it in large part. I also like, because I'm not a historian, I also like to keep open the value and the function of um, representation, the, the, the tools and the techniques that writers and filmmakers and comic book illustrators and even podcast makers uh, use to, to frame history in certain ways. And again, I, I really don't want to suggest to you or to any of your listeners that I believe there's any kind of deception in that process, right? Um, a, a novel about Oppenheimer, and again, there's a, a dozen or more uh, novels that feature Oppenheimer as a character, uh, including some that that take some very, very um, distant, let's say a distant approach to history, right? A really kind of um, uh, fantasy world in, into which Oppenheimer gets inserted. I don't want to suggest that those are valueless because they are distant from history. They're, they're able to tell us something um, about, if not the actual events of history as they unfolded in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, but about how we imagine it, how we think about it, how somebody like Oppenheimer occupies a place in our culture, not just as this kind of dusty old black and white figure from history, but as a as a force, as a as as part of a context, as part of a larger understanding of of, of science, of literature, of film, um, and of of I mean, especially when you get into genres like science fiction and fantasy, um, the the question there is less you know how are these related to the quote unquote real world, and what do they tell us about the process of imagination? And and I think a lot of how we imagine the atomic bomb and, and a lot of what we do when we think about the atomic bomb is imagination. It's an act of imagination. We think about what a nuclear winter would look like. We think about what the end of the world would look like were there to be a massive nuclear exchange between nuclear superpowers, right? We, we But none of that has, aside from the bombs that were dropped in Japan, none of that has happened, right? So we have to use our imaginations to think about what the future is. That's, I mean, that's what the ending of that film, Nolan's film does so nicely is, imagines what the potential future consequences of the development of this weapon could be. So I, I, I get that idea that um, fidelity to history is important. I just want to make sure that, and, and this is something I try to emphasize in, in, in my work, um, the, the value of imagination as well when we're thinking about a figure like Oppenheimer. Yeah, I'm not, we're not going to dissect the film this whole podcast and letting you know that. Huh? But what my thing is that that's the public's perception or what they're going to see, because a lot of people aren't going to look deeper into who Oppenheimer was or what his story was. So having that as a scratching basis, I mean, if anyone wants to go do the extra effort to go look into it, but my generation's probably not going to do it. I mean, when I was sitting in that theater. I was the youngest one there. I could tell you that much. There was a bunch of elderly people there because I, I don't know they were close to living it. Basically, they could experience it. They could understand a little bit more than probably what I was being able to pick up, but it is when you look into anything or even Oppenheimer's life, he's either this destroyer of worlds or he's this figure that kind of saved us in a jam when it came to this arms race that was going on or what was depicted. So when you look at this, it it depends on your politics. I mean, more people think of him like I saw a bunch of people tweeting out before I even saw the movie. What about the people that live nearby where those launchings were happening? They didn't even talk about that or they didn't. Does anybody care about those types of things? Now, that's obviously people are going to see that and they're going to go see this film, but it, it has me trying to find out who he was, like what his life was like. Did, you know, the poisoning apple scene that they had in the beginning of the movie, I, I think it was a different term for it, but he had schizophrenia or something like that of some sort. So I don't know if that's controversial take, but I'm interested. What were you able to uncover about 
Oppenheimer through your work or your view of what you're able to look through so I can better inform myself as well too. Yeah, great question too. Um, so like I said, I'm not a historian, so I haven't, I, 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 I read the histories of Oppenheimer and the histories of the Manhattan Project as, as something of a dilettante or something of an amateur or, or, or as sort of background for the kind of work that I do. But I mean, some of the things I've discovered about him and his life, um, I, I, I like to put into a kind of larger cultural context. So for instance, um, I think he sits within a very long tradition of American scientists, a particular view of American scientists as either or, or both these kind of strange, um, untrustworthy, vaguely unsavory, uh, dubious, unusual people. And that's the poisoning apple scene, uh, right, from, from the film. And that's the, 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 the possible diagnosis of schizophrenia, right? There's something wrong with this guy. And the other half of that equation is um, like your Benjamin Franklin's or your Thomas Edison's, these sort of brilliant technicians, inventors who, um, who engineer, who create these sort of practical uh, devices or inventions or technologies that indicate progress and modernity, right? And I think Oppenheimer, the historical guy, like the actual historical figure, fits very nicely into that, into that, um, that context. He, he was a theoretical physicist, and this was at a time you know, coming out of the tradition of Thomas Edison, who was a very hands-on practical guy, an in-the-lab tinkerer, an inventor, right? So he, and, and Oppenheimer comes along as a theoretician. And there's that scene in the film where he says he's a bad experimentalist and he knocks over the beaker, right? So he was clumsy in the laboratory and he wasn't a very good hands-on kind of guy. But he, he was a theoretician. And there's this long tradition of skepticism of that kind of work, right? Like it's not real work. Or like it's not um, like like there's something particularly uh, um, potentially unsavory about it or unusual about it, um, but at the same time he was the scientific director of this project that gave us a very tangible piece of technology. Um, some people have called it, I pro probably even myself have called it the most important technological invention of the 20th century, the most important object or device or um, uh, or, or, or thing, material thing. Um, so, you know, he, he, he may not have, he may have been kind of clumsy in the laboratory, but he ended up producing this, this piece of technology and object that I, I think sits at the center of what we think of as 20th century modernity. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, the question of what I've learned about Oppenheimer is that I think he fits both of those kind of very general, very, very large generalizations about what the American scientist is. Um, and, and I think there's there's plenty of evidence in those history books and, and in his archives and in his papers and in stories that people have told uh, about him that he's he's very much both of those figures. He's kind of daydreaming, theoretical, mystical, magical uh, kind of sorcerer figure on the one hand. And, and there's lots of things in his in his um, in his biography that support that the poisoning of the apple. There's a famous story about how he went on a date with somebody and he's driving around in his car and they park at the side of the hill. And then he gets out and wanders away because he's thinking about a physics problem. And he leaves her, he leaves his date in the car behind and he wanders home thinking about his, the, the, like the really typical absent-minded professor type of <laughs> type of story that really helps reinforce that notion that theoreticians are suspect, they're dubious, they do weird things. And then there's all these things from, from the later part of his career, the, the, the Manhattan Project part of his career, where he is um, doing the really hard hands-on physical work of putting this bomb together. And, and there's the stories about how he was he would subsist on cigarettes and martinis while they were 
uh, in, in the days and weeks leading up to the detonation of the atomic bomb. And he's six foot two and he's whittled himself down to 90 pounds, right? So there's this kind of um, uh, focus on, on the body, on, on, on the work that he's doing, the hard work that he's doing with his body as opposed to his mind, much more in the tradition of you know Ben Franklin flying the kite, or Thomas Edison in his in his um, workshop creating creating the light bulb, or what have you. Um, so there's there's all kinds of things I think that come from the real history of Oppenheimer that that fit in with the these kind of cultural I don't want to call them stereotypes, but they I mean they kind of are uh, the cultural contexts or cultural modes of understanding what a scientist is, right? Have you thought about what that does to a person? Like, obviously, if he's not eating and if he's living off martinis and you know smoking cigarettes, which he seemed like he smoked, like every scene was a cigarette in his mouth, at least, whether he smoked it or not. But I'd have to think, I mean, when you say something like I've become death destroyer of worlds, to me, that's very interesting. I know it's a quote that he read somewhere and he ended up saying it, but you just look at it like that's someone that recognizes what they did could either end war or be the start and finish to a lot of things. And you can basically just become someone that is like the destroyer of worlds. I mean, there's no opening up Pandora's box and then closing it. It's kind of, you just opened up and now everyone has an ability to pull or take a peek inside. So to me, that was interesting. I'm not asking you a psychology question, but I think it's interesting of what does that do to a person? And I think when you can look at his, what he was like, I mean, just depictions of him or appearance of him, Look at the magazine covers of him. I mean, the I I got eye bags too, but I mean that his face was sunken in a bit, and that doesn't just come from not eating. That comes from a severe amount of stress as well, too. Whether it's pressure from academics, I mean, even the paranoia that begins when you start realizing that there's spies on the Manhattan Project, and we know Russia was trying to get information on things as well, too. Yeah, absolutely, and no question, all of that stuff takes a, a physical toll on a person, and, and unquestionably a psychological toll on a person. Um, the, the the question of the, the the story of I am become death of destroyer of worlds is a kind of really interesting example maybe of of, of Oppenheimer trying to wrestle with these these um, these these issues. So he uh, the story goes that he did not say that on the night of the de- the morning of the detonation of of the bomb. He did not speak those words aloud to anybody there in the bunker uh, a quarter of a mile from the test site or whatever the distance was. He he says. In retrospect, and he and he and he first articulates this in the early 1960s. He says, "At the time, I thought of a line from the Bhagavad Gita. This is the uh, Hindu scripture that he had um, taught himself to read in the original Sanskrit uh, um, many decades earlier. And there's a line in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, I am become death, a destroyer of worlds.' So he's quoting Hindu scripture in retrospect. He's thinking back to this to this point in 1945." Um, when he claims this this line from scripture came came to mind. And and to me, that gets at that that earlier question you asked about the relationship between um, a representation, in, in this case, cinematic representation and actual history. We don't know whether he actually thought of that line at the time in July of 1945 after the bomb had gone off. He tells us this story many decades later, and he says, I thought of the line from the Bhagavad Gita, but there's no evidence that he actually did that. So is this a question of Oppenheimer himself um, performing a little bit of revisionist history and thinking, in light of what I know now in the in the intervening years, have I become death? Was that the moment where I became a potential destroyer of worlds? To, to me, I, I think it's yes. I mean, I think he's I think he's realizing at that moment that that that's one of the things that's happening there. Um, he is he has become this um, pivotal figure 
uh, in history uh, with, with this really, really potentially um, destructive component to it that he's, you know, potentially guilty about or uh, is, is sort of wrestling with morally. And that line occurs to him. Maybe it doesn't occur to him in 1945. Maybe it occurs to him in the, in the early 60s um, as, a, as a way of encapsulating what he believes he should have felt in 1945. And, and again, I, this is all speculation, right? Like we, and, and, and ultimately, it comes down to the fact that he did not quote that line in 1945. He claimed later that that line occurred to him at that moment. So it, it gets into the weeds, right? When it really gets deeply into the weeds when you're thinking about the relationship between how we tell a story or how Oppenheimer tells his own story. I have a whole um, chapter in my book on Oppenheimer about his own his own words, like his own writing, his own self-presentation, his own biography, autobiography, right? Um, and, and so the, the question becomes, how do you parse out real history, whatever that may be, however we may access that. How do we even access that when all we have now are stories, right? Or, or documents that reflect certain facets of history, but by no means give us a comprehensive picture of history. From his own autobiography, did he seem like the same Oppenheimer from the start as he was towards the finish? I mean, after everything, even being in, if that court thing, that private court thing that they were doing, the little show that that was going on, it seemed more like he was being persecuted um, the way the movie depicted it. But I'm curious, after all that, even experiencing the Manhattan Project and being involved in so much, he always just seemed like back to what you said about being like a Thomas Edison type, head in the clouds a little bit, but really not really concerned about the political stuff. I know they you know, mentioned some communist friends and things of that sort, but it seemed like he was more, there was a task and he was going to complete the task type deal. Um, and that's kind of what he was focused on. And then after seeing what happened, like, I think they even show a scene where he meets, um, Oh God, who's the president Eisenhower and Eisenhower's a bit of a dick to him when he realized he didn't do it for like military allegiance or something of that sort of this patriotism. It was kind of more like he had some regrets on some things. He's like, get him out and don't invite that crybaby back. I'm not saying that's factual history. I'm just saying when you look at that part, it kind of views like, yeah, I, obviously he was more focused on like, here's a task to do and complete this, not a sense of patriotism, but more like there's this cool thing that we can really create and be the first thing to put our name in a history book type deal. And then whatever happens after that is not his responsibility. And it kind of evolves from there. I'm curious on your thoughts on that. I mean, do you think he was the same Oppenheimer from the start as he was at the finish? Yeah, so th that was Harry Truman he was talking to. Uh, okay, President I said Eisenhower, whoops. <laughs> when he said, I have blood on my hands, and Truman called him a crybaby. And, and apparently that 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 conversation, as depicted in the film, accords with with reality, with, with, with the historical record. He, he really did say that to Truman, and Truman really did call him a crybaby. Maybe not, you know, within earshot, as it was depicted in the movie, but maybe later or privately to his aides or something, but he he did call him a crybaby. And, and, he, and he told him he didn't want didn't to speak to him again. Um, Truman, by the way, in the film was played by Gary Oldman, which I completely missed when I saw this. I had, I, I, this blew my mind to find out later that Gary Oldman played Truman in that film. It just blew my mind. Uh, he just completely disappeared into that, into that role uh, of, of the kind of, you know, asshole president who doesn't want this crybaby physicist uh, in his office anymore. Great. It's a, you know, great. Wait, really did they really great performance. Did they blur it? I know they focused in on Oppenheimer, so everything in the background kind of seemed like it was a little bit blurry. I must have missed that too. I didn't know he was in it. Yeah, there, there were some great close-ups of his face, and I just just 
completely went over my head that that was scary. It is three hours long. So. It is three <laughs> hours long. Yeah. And and there are many, many characters that they introduce in quick succession. Uh, and, and some of these big name actors play really, really brief roles. Remy Malik playing um, playing Hill, who's testifying against Louis Straws there towards the end. These really brief but really kind of uh, incandescent moments, and I, and I think the Truman portrayal there was was one of them. But yeah, I mean, it, it I, I think it gets to the to, to to come back to your question of do I think he was the same at the beginning of the end? No, I, I don't think he was the same at the beginning uh, versus the end. And I think that that Truman scene kind of cap captures a lot of that. He was um, um, somewhat reluctant uh, in, in those scenes earlier in the film, and when he's teaching at Berkeley, and he gets kind of recruited, and Groves shows up to recruit him to the Manhattan Project, and he has to kind of be talked into it a little bit. Um, but then, you know, as we've already discussed, while he was working on the project, he was going hell bent for leather on that project to get that bomb finished before the the Nazis did, and you know, wearing himself down to ninety pounds and chain smoking and drinking too much and all this stuff. Um, and and he called he called the project to which he was assigned uh, technically sweet. He found it technically sweet, and he got really really into it because he found this a really interesting technical problem to deal with. But then uh, after he um, got a bit more of a sense of uh, what this weapon had been used for in Japan and what it could potentially be used for in the future, uh, he 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 changed his tune in in many respects. He uh, he said. I, he said to to, her, to no less a person than the president of the United States, I have blood on my hands uh, about this. So he's expressing this kind of profound guilt about it. Truman brushed him off, handed him a handkerchief in a very mocking sort of way and called him a crybaby and told him to get out. But he he was expressing in that moment, I think, you know, how, how profound a change he had undergone from the Manhattan Project days where he was single-mindedly pursuing this really technically sweet project. Uh, versus his realization later on of what this was what this was to be used for. This also circles back a little bit to to some of the comments you made about um, his politics. And yeah, he he was certainly in the early part of his his life very apolitical. He, uh, according to the historical records, um, was not aware that the Great Depression had happened. Uh, that you know this is how isolated he was from the 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 material world of the working man, right? He he only realized later that there had been a, a great depression and that all these people were out of work and on and on and on. Um, and and I mean, yeah, he was involved in um, some uh, leftist political uh, activities, um, uh, raising awareness for um, um, civil rights and raising awareness for minimum wage for for employer employment. Um, raising All good money. things, but yeah, raising for the government for back then. Now. Yeah, anti-fascists in the uh, in the Spanish Civil War, like he was on the side of the anti-fascists there. Uh, obviously, he was working hard against the fascist uh, regime in Germany in the in the nineteen forties. Um, so you know, he he was political in that sense. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, following the the crybaby remark and following Louis Straw's kind of obsessive um, mission to. Uh, humiliate Oppenheimer and, and to strip him of his of his security clearance. I think he he I, th I think that's where the politics of it often come in as well, right? Um, a kind of um, holdover of the, the 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 paranoia of the McCarthy years um, coming to bear, coming coming down upon uh, this this person who had, yeah, as you said, you know, taken up the task and 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 done the job that was assigned to him. Uh, as a as a patriotic American, I I, I mean I don't want to I I want to be careful not to perpetuate that kind of martyrdom that sometimes gets assigned to him. He wasn't a sort of peacenik. He wasn't a an anti-war activist. 
he, um, you know, right after the bombs were dropped on Japan, he was he was ecstatic, as as were everyone else around him. It's only later, in retrospect, that he started to express these these misgivings and this guilt. Um, so he was he was a patriot. I mean, that's that's another another thing I think you can call him an American patriot who did the job that was assigned to him, um, did it did it with gusto, did it with um, great competence. Uh, and then was pilloried afterwards uh, for for really complex political reasons that had had to do to some degree with um, that that perception of the scientist, the American the perception of the American scientist that I was alluding to before. Uh, he became the creepy, dubious theoretician again, dabbling in communism uh, and 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 uh, potentially disloyal. Right, all all those um, components of that stereotype. Came into play during Louis Strauss's persecution of Oppenheimer, uh, which which we see towards the end of the film. There, so yeah, I mean, the 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 change I think in Oppenheimer is is clear. Um, it's it's emphatic. He's he's a very different person um, in the 1960s than he was in the 1930s, um, and it's and it's a very interesting uh, route in terms of how he got from one to the other. The Strauss prosecution that was going on, did he ever write about that in a journal or anything, keep notes on it, or was that all just private hearings? Like, do we have logs or documents on that about, like, what was actually being asked to him and putting – because it just seemed like they were more digging into his personal relationships and things of that sort. I think even in the film, they show him naked in a seat in front of his wife and everything, like he's being put out to bear, but – you know, I mean, you can't get in trouble for having friends that are have those certain viewpoints. I know with the government, that's a problem just because they suspect you of being a communist spy. It seemed like everyone was back then. But with that Strauss prosecution, I'm just curious if he wrote anything down himself, Oppenheimer, of like, this is what's happening to me or this is some just you have to have some thoughts. I mean, your country loves you at one moment and then they hate you the next. You know, you're getting deemed or painted as a whatever, a communist or a spy or this creepy person in general. Traitor, yeah, I, that, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I, do, I don't know, I don't know what Straws wrote down. He, he tried, and the film gets this quite, quite uh, accurately as well. He tried to distance himself from the, those AEC, those Atomic Energy Commission hearings. So he was kind of the pup. Straws was kind of the puppet master behind the scenes of this, uh, of this kind of kangaroo court hearing. Uh, he tried to distance himself from that, but he was kind of the architect of that, of that hearing. The hearing itself, uh, yeah, there's there's lots and lots of documentation on that. The transcripts are are all there and available. Um, you can you can read the transcripts of that entire. It, it took place over um, I forget how long, it, numerous days. Um, I don't know if it was quite weeks long, but it was many days long. These hearings and and there's full transcripts of of all of those. I, I that's a really good question. I don't know what Oppenheimer himself may have written down about those hearings in particular i don't know if he had a private diary that he um that he where he recounted his experience of this or whether he recounted it in a more public way later on i'd, I'd have to look into i'd have to go back to it's, it's been a while since i've worked on oppenheimer to be honest uh, um, so I'm, I'm coming back to this from some a uh, little bit of distance i'd have to go back to his books he published uh, i believe it was three books of essays and speeches um one of which I think was published posthumously just just a year or two after he died. A collection of his essays and speeches, um, and I'd have to see what's in there when it when it comes to his own perception of the AEC hearings. I'm not sure. That's a, that's a really interesting question, and and it's probably a question you would want to direct to like an actual historian of of Oppenheimer. Um, but he, I know he was, I know he was humiliated from that experience. The um, the Kennedy administration tried to rehabilitate his um, his reputation later on by 
uh, awarding him the, uh, the the prize. Kennedy was assassinated before he could give the prize, and so it ended up being Johnson, as we see President Johnson, as we see in the film, awarding him the uh, uh, the, the sort of rehabilitative medal to kind of um, um, reclaim his reputation. His his security clearance wasn't reinstated until um, I believe it was earlier this year. Um, the U.S. government reneged on that and uh, said that was a mistake. He should not have had his security clearance stripped. And they've kind of reversed that, if you will. So um, that's a little, a little bit late, ain't it? Yeah, a little bit late, don't you think? Yeah, uh, it, it took a while for, for that to come to come back. Um, but he when Oppenheimer died in um, uh, in. Um, oops, is it 62 or 63? Uh, when he died in the early 60s, he um, many people said he died a broken man. He died humiliated. He died. Uh, with with a significant portion of the American population, Kennedy was assassinated in '63. So if it was Johnson giving him a medal, it had to be around that time. Or That's after. right. Okay. So yeah, you're right. Uh, so six, 64, 65. Oh shoot, I forget. Um, yeah, somewhere somewhere in there. Um, do you know why Kennedy was one of those people that supported? I'm guessing. I mean, I know you said you're working on something about Kennedy. We don't have to get into if you don't want to spoil anything or give out any secrets. But um, I'm interested in the Kennedy stuff. So when they mentioned that in the film, I had to immediately search up if that was true because I hadn't come across that in any of my. I've died in the Kennedy's past, letters, Khrushchev, all this type of stuff, his whole family history, everything, and now even looking into his brother's stuff as well too. Um, so that was surprising to me, which doesn't seem out of the extraordinary for Kennedy. Obviously he supported people but i'm wondering if he noticed that a lot of the stuff that was going on like taking oppenheimer's name through the mud a little bit whether that was strauss that was doing that i wonder if he was aware of that you know to be put on a radar i didn't know if they were hinting at this guy killed kennedy because i was getting pissed at that i was like don't even say that i don't want to talk about that part yeah um yeah that, that'd be an interesting twist to the to the whole kennedy assassination narrative if oppenheimer was uh involved in that somehow no i mean i i mean kennedy was a kennedy supported oppenheimer he 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 saw as as many americans saw um that the aec hearings was uh was a sham and that this there was some kind of um paranoid vindictiveness operating behind this this whole thing and so um you know Ken kennedy Kennedy was on the side of of seeing Oppenheimer as an American hero and as uh, as as the person who who helped win the war and and, and all of all of that side of the narrative. Um, so yeah, I mean, I you know that's 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 there and that's in the record. Kennedy's on record um, as as being a, a supporter. Um, yeah, assassinated in '63, and so Johnson ended up being the one to present Oppenheimer with the medal publicly. Um, but, you know, uh, I think a lot of people felt that by that point, the damage had been done to, to Oppenheimer and he, and he didn't live much longer after that, um, to, to enjoy his, you know, rehabilitated reputation. But, um, there, there was that period before the AEC hearings where he was consulted regularly by foreign policy makers and, uh, nuclear weapons strategists and, um, just the general public, uh, putting him on Life Magazine, for example. Uh, as as an as an important figure um, worth worth paying attention to, which is you know part also part of that that notion of revering uh, certain kinds of science and certain kinds of scientists uh, for for giving us stuff for giving us it's sort of like um, scientists as Santa Claus, right? Look at all these great technologies that these gifts that these scientists have given us in this way, and and yeah, I mean depending on your politics, depending on how much you are. You're uh, on on board with the McCarthyite um, paranoia. 
um, is is he is he Santa Claus or is he some kind of um, evil figure? You know, bringing these these things to us that we shouldn't have, right? Was the Manhattan Project received, or I mean, was I mean, was the public knew about? I mean, that town that was being built. I'm pretty sure a lot of people knew that there was this place getting built where all these scientists or researchers were being brought to. But was it received? This like was he open as? I guess open as he was in the movie about it. I mean, supporting it a hundred percent. I mean, getting those scientists to move down there. But was the general public as happy about it as everyone else was? I mean, even people living close by. I don't know if you would know that question, but well, I mean, the, so the construction of Los Alamos and the um, they built it quick. They did, yeah. And and the the whole the whole operation that was happening there was done in um, uh, from what I understand, very very tight secrecy. So there were people who were able to kind of piece together something's going on. These these physicists are disappearing from their university posts. They've they've mysteriously stopped publishing on uh, nuclear science, atomic science, because we don't want we don't want our our foreign enemies to have access to this information. They knew something was going on. They maybe didn't know where it was. Um, people had little bits and pieces of information, but nobody had the complete picture until after the bombs were dropped on Japan. And then it's like boom, the Manhattan Project was dropped on the American people. And they just discovered this incredibly elaborate, complex, expensive, secret, totally secret infrastructure for producing this, this weapon. And, and I think in the initial aftermath of the war, so they, they dropped the bomb, the war ends. Everybody's thrilled about that, obviously. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, I think the, the general perception of the Manhattan Project was Fantastic. This is the greatest thing we've ever done. This is an amazing technological achievement. Hooray for those scientists who did all of this. They, they were heroes. They were they were lauded. And, and the project was deemed a, a huge success and, and like the quintessence of American technological power and ingenuity to be able to do this kind of thing, to be able to do it mostly almost entirely in, in secret. There were some spies in Los Alamos and some information inevitably got out. But by and large, people had no, no idea what was going on until after the war. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, to, to answer your question of, you know, what did people think of this? I, I think it was, I think it was um, seen as a, a huge success. Um, and it's, and it was only later that uh, I think that that sense of misgiving or that sense of guilt or that sense of, you know, what can of worms have we opened up here? That starts to percolate through the population in the years and, and decades after the Second World War. Now, but in there... the initial aftermath, it's like, this is fantastic. Is there any literature that you've come across or films or anything like that that kind of matched a lot of what the newer one had, the new one I've seen, the Oppenheimer movie that gave a better depiction of this? Like, what's the best thing you've come across on Oppenheimer so far that he's been represented in besides? I mean, would you say the film's the best, the newest one? Well, I mean, again, it comes back, it comes back to that question of how you define best. Um, and and so, you know, to leave aside that that tricky definition of how we define the best. I, I really, I, I like to direct people to the 1980 BBC miniseries. It was a seven part uh, miniseries that the BBC produced way back in 1980. Um, and because it's seven, I believe they're, I believe they're one hour long um, episodes. We get a lot more, right? I mean, one of the things that's, that's amazing about uh, Nolan's Oppenheimer is the pace, the speed of this how quickly he gets through this, this story, how fast paced the movie is. And um, with something like the BBC's um, 1980 Oppenheimer, it's a much slower pace. You get into these characters a lot more with a lot more depth and a lot more detail. Um, if you're looking for you know, historical detail, 
I would say that BBC miniseries is is maybe your go to uh, your go to cinematic example of Oppenheimer. Um, the the Nolan thing is is um, very detailed and very um, extensive and very complicated as well, but it's incredibly fast. And so I I wonder I wondered as I was watching this film what people who might not be as familiar with the story would think of this pace. Is this a film that's that people can follow? Is this a film that you know, who is this guy in the background playing the bongos? Like, and why, why is he doing, you know, but if you know the story of the Manhattan Project, you know, that's Richard Feynman um, and, and he liked to play the bongos, but we, we don't get any of that detail in Nolan's film. We just sort of see these characters in the background sometimes, or they have these very brief walk-on roles. The, the BBC thing um, goes into considerably more detail. We get a lot more of the AEC hearings, for instance. We get a lot more of Edward Teller's testimony in the AEC hearings in the BBC version of this story where, you know, a lot of people come out of the Nolan film saying, why was Teller, why was Teller a turncoat? Why did he testify against Oppenheimer like that? And, and the BBC version gives you a little bit more detail and a little bit more reasoning as to, as to why people like Edward Teller behaved the way that they did after being such an integral part of the Manhattan Project itself, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, no, you know, nothing against the Nolan thing, but uh, the, the the BBC version starring Sam Waterston from 1980, seven-part miniseries, um, goes into some pretty exceptional detail about the whole story. Now, I don't I don't think I asked you this, which probably would seem like it would have been a great start to the podcast, but what was your interest in Oppenheimer? What, what was the whole, like, what was your first opening up experience, which was like, this is someone I want to learn more about? I mean, you're when you say fast-paced on the three-hour Oppenheimer movie... I think that was just a difficult movie choice in general to do, especially to try and make something about this person's life who had done so much, or at least is a, is a historical figure. I mean, it, it, it's just like doing a JFK film. I mean, you can't, anything's usually three hours long or something like that because you have so much you have to compact into a little bit and still not miss details. Like there was a lot of questions I had about certain individuals that were involved in the Oppenheimer movie. And I'm sure many other people had way more questions. And I know a lot about the 60s and 70s. So like I was already coming in, like I already have a connection to this a little bit. I'm in, I'm ready. I would sit down for a five hour movie if it was five hours. For general public though, that's kind of like, ah, uh, I was like, you have to leave like a little, a couple things at the ending. Like, Hey, this happened then later, or this was a significant event. And this like in subtitles captioning or something like that, but it kind of just ended with you. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're asking sort of two questions there. One is what about my interest and one is about, you know, why somebody like Nolan, Christopher Nolan would engage in this story too. And I, I mean, I, I don't know Nolan's interest where that came from. Um, and, and it, and it does, you're right. It does seem like an unlikely topic for him to deal with, right. A kind of historical biopic of a theoretical physicist. It's kind of a strange topic for somebody like Christopher Nolan to take on. Um, my interest in it comes from, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I started grad school with an interest in the 60s and 70s too, and I got more interested in some of the earlier period, the mid-century and a little bit earlier than that. So my interest and, and my kind of my professional training is in the middle of the 20th century. And to me, the, you know, one of the most important things about the 20th century was that middle point in the 20th century when the atomic bomb was invented and used to end world war ii right it's it's just a extremely important historical moment the um the, the technology itself is an extremely important and and significant piece of technology um it is it is like the the technology of the 20th century so i mean my interest was was just just kind of um it started with a with an interest in in that historical moment, the the middle of the twentieth century, 
it, it also really got going in 2008 when I spent um, a month or so in Los Angeles and I got to see some of um, Oppenheimer's archive at Caltech. They've got some of his papers and some of his books and some of his stuff there at Caltech. And I, I got, I, I was, I was there for other reasons. And I was, I was, but I was able to look at some of this stuff. And I just got interested in him uh, as a, as a um, important historical figure of this period. I was already interested in. I started, started reading a bunch of biographies. The, the literary studies part of me kicked in, and, and I started noticing certain patterns in how these biographies were telling the story of Oppenheimer, images or motifs or tropes, metaphors and symbols, all the stuff that literature people are supposed to look at. And so it, it kind of snowballed from there. And I, I, I started working on biographies and the biographies led to interest in film and comic books and other things. And I ended up doing a, a pretty substantial bit of work on Oppenheimer uh, on the basis of those, those biographies and some of those papers I, I saw at Caltech. Did some of those biographies on Oppenheimer have maybe a biased or political thing kind of put into it a little bit that you necessarily either agreed with or disagreed with? Like did people depict him as a hero as much as, you know, maybe the Nolan film did, or do you think people depicted him with a more of a, it's, it's a sketchy argument really with what he did. I mean, I know, understand maybe he didn't realize what he was doing. He realized it later. Yes. But I mean, if you're coming at it from, like I said, the people that were tweeting out things about like the people that were inhabiting the area by there and the damage that was on it, they don't look at it as a positive thing that he did. And a lot of people that are anti-war wouldn't look at it in that way either. But I looked at it as more, like I said, he was more about completing the task and what could you accomplish getting your name in a history book or creating something revolutionary. And then obviously the bomb dropping, that was a, rough scene as well too because the guy was like oh don't bomb there because that's where i vacation home i'm like oh god i can't believe he's thinking about that right now yeah yeah no that's that's a i i mean the question of you know a, a biographer's political bias creeping into the book is an important question but again i i, I kind of like to think i kind of like to look at it in in as a good faith effort to represent the full complexity of the situation so the the best biographies don't do either of those sort of lionize him as a as a unproblematic American hero, um, which would be just kind of idiotic. And and at the same time, they don't um, they don't um, demonize him as this terrible person who invented a terrible thing that killed a lot of people. Because it's the story is much more complicated than either of those two kind of very polarized images, right? So the the biographies, by and large, for the most part, the ones that I have looked at and studied. Um, try to get at the full complexity of the situation. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, the whole notion of, of downwinders, these, these are the people that you're talking about who were in the area when these tests were being conducted. And they've been kind of written out of history. They've been kind of erased from history. And, and there, are, there are scholars who say that the, the first people who had nuclear weapons tested on them were actually Americans. It was not the Japanese, it was Americans. It was the people who lived in the area where these bombs were tested in, in the United States. And, and, you know, and, and and I've seen some critiques of Nolan's film that um, run along those same lines. He's left out the story of uh, these these people who were uh, affected by nuclear tests. He's left out the story of the inhabitants of the plateau, the, the mesa where the, the work took place. Um, the movie leaves out the important role that women played in the Manhattan Project. And those are all absolutely valid critiques, right? Those Those are parts of the story that have been left out. The, the issue with some of the biographies and some of the histories is that because those stories have been left out from the beginning, there's just so little to work with on, on, on that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, the biographies and the histories kind of 
replicate or reproduce that problem of erasure, that problem of whose story does not get told in the story of, of Oppenheimer. Um, it, 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 I don't want to kind of justify it by saying, well, there, there, there just isn't enough records to work with, but um, the good ones, the, the, the responsible biographies and the, the more responsible histories acknowledge that. And they say, look, they called this plateau uh, isolated, or they called it empty, or they called it uh, remote, or they called it uninhabited, but it wasn't. There were people there. Um, there were um, Native American people living there. Um, there were um, uh, women working on the Manhattan Project whose stories we don't know. They were there. Um, but the responsible histories and biographies acknowledge those unwritten stories, those untold stories. Um, and and I think I mean, I think that's kind of the best you can do. You, you tell the story as honestly as you can. You you keep your eye out for the stories that don't get told, the stories that get erased. And you make sure that you at least acknowledge the existence of those stories. Um, you know, the, the, the kinds of narratives that demonize Oppenheimer and call him a, a bad, a bad guy for creating this bomb are themselves participating in a kind of erasure, right? It's, it's the military and it's the U.S. government that actually decided to use the, the technology that he created in the way that they did. They commissioned him to do it and then they used the product. So that's, that's part of the story that gets left out when we're talking about Oppenheimer as a bad guy. When we're talking about him as a as a kind of un, unproblematic American patriot, we get all sorts of other stories that get left out from from that tale. So I, I think the best biographies and the best histories are the ones that try to tell the full range of the story and that know that there are blind spots in the story we, we, that, that, that we have to be aware of, even if we don't always know all the details. Do you think that there was documentation that could have been important to maybe get a better picture of Oppenheimer or maybe the AEC hearings um, that could have been destroyed? I know there's you said there's a lot of documentation on those hearings, but I would have to think that there are some things or some whether it was a diary, whether it was a letter, whether it was something like that, whether it was a person's I know that leads into speculation, but I'd have to think that there might be a little bit that, you know, we would we don't have a whole lot from I I guess maybe from his own personal accounts. I don't know, his diary. Um, I mean, as as you said yourself early on, the 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 things that the government can get away with under the guise of national security are are quite extensive. Damn so <laughs> who knows, right? Like who knows what was destroyed in the name of national security? Like we we don't know. <laughs> um, and and it, and and I would be surprised if the answer was nothing. I, I'm I'm sure there were records and documents that were destroyed um, for the for the sake of national security. To keep these secrets from falling into the hands of of the enemies, I mean, as the scene with Truman in the film shows you, there's there's a certain amount of absurdity to that, right? Um, when when Truman asks Oppenheimer, "When do you think the Soviets are going to have uh, a similar weapon?" and Oppenheimer is like, "Well, maybe," and Truman interrupts him and says, "Never, right? Uh, never." This kind of delusional sense that just by denying. Uh, or, or um, asserting American superiority in this in this way, we can prevent the bomb from falling into anybody else's hands. And and the absurdity of that was was immediate immediately apparent. Um, that this was scientific knowledge that any uh, competent physicist working in the area at the time would know. So the idea of you know the U.S. security apparatus destroying documents to keep this information from falling into the hands of enemies is a bit silly, but at the same time, it, it, it's almost un, un, unquestionably true that at some point information was was destroyed um, or pot potentially information was fabricated, right? Who, who knows, right? Um, 
that you, you you've asked a couple of times like what what are what what's the evidence for Oppenheimer's own thoughts on the AEC hearing? And I think that's an excellent question. I just don't have the answer to that. I yeah, don't know. Sorry. It's, it's something. No, it's it's a, it's a great question, and I, I I but I just don't know. Um, I just don't. Know, I'm just not sure how to answer that. But it would be very interesting to go back to his own writing and his own work to try to get a sense of um, you know what his most personal thoughts were uh, while he was going through that. Do you think history has enough representations of people like Oppenheimer or historical figures like that, even if it's a varying of perspectives, uh, whether that people treat him as a god or people treat him as a demon, and also with the Manhattan Project as well, too? I mean, I've seen plenty of documentaries that you can find on like Netflix or anything like that that show important historical stuff in great episode formats, like just the facts of this. It is slow paced, so obviously it's not on everyone's eye, but do you think that there's enough representations? I'm noticing now this cultural shift towards more history and more it's been happening over the past couple of years but more documentaries more things of that sort have been hitting a more history i think there's four films of the jfk stuff coming out um yeah. this coming I mean, up here in terms of re representations of you know like the troubled genius figure yeah there there's a lot of representation there there's enough there's maybe too much of that kind of stuff um, you know, the, because so many of these um, figures are the same, right? Um, straight, white, upper middle class men who are um, presented, depicted, represented as creative geniuses, right? And, and this spans all, you know, all fields. This is in art, this is in painting, this is in music, this is in filmmaking, this is in science, this is in technology. Um, the, those figures, you know, the, 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 the Edison figure, um, the, the John Nash, the brilliant but troubled mathematician who was the subject of that film, A Beautiful Mind, right? There's, there's lots and lots of examples of that figure. So, I mean, is, is there enough? Yeah, there's definitely enough. There's, there's probably too much and um, too much in the sense that it's those other stories that have historically been erased that keep getting erased when we keep telling this story again. And I'm guilty of that myself in, in writing a book about Oppenheimer and in, and in talking with talking uh, about him, um, you know, presenting him as this incredibly, incredibly important figure, which he was. Um, but in doing so, I'm also participating in that process of erasing some of those other stories. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the 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 the, the, the kind of widespread cultural interest in history is is great to see um but we always have to be careful about framing it around a single person because more often than not that single person is going to be a white middle class male genius figure like like Oppenheimer um or or like the the great men of history narratives that we that we used to see so much of um and and the danger with that kind of historiography or that kind of representation is that those stories that have long been erased continue to be erased, right? Yeah. I um, it's an important example would be Fred Hampton's assassination. I've Sorry, done, uh, Fred Hampton. You ever heard of Fred, Fred Hampton? Hampton? Yeah, the yeah. young black activist who was killed, twenty-one years old, um, by Chicago police. There's not a biography. Well, there's biographies about him. Jeffrey Haas has written one. I've had him on the show, and many others have been on the show talking about Fred Hampton. But there's not a movie. Besides Judith and Black Messiah, which, to be honest, me, Jeffrey Howes, and everybody else dissected that thing as being not a very good depiction of Fred Hampton at all. They made him look like a bit of a thug in that movie. But there's not really any cultural stories like that or someone like that of a young – from who's not a white male or something of that sort. That gets represented as a historical documentary that comes out. So I get the point on that. But is there one thing about Oppenheimer that you learned that you didn't like about Oppenheimer? Not the movie, the just through your work on the figure himself. 
Yeah. Um, well, he, I mean, he, he could certainly be an arrogant person. Um, and, and this goes back to, you know, his, his childhood, even there, there's a story of him as a 10 year old, 10 year old Robert saying to an older cousin, um, ask me a question in Latin and I will answer you in Greek. Right. Uh, as a sort of little show off, right. He's, he's showing off all of his learning that he's been doing as a, as a little kid. So that there's, there's a, there's an arrogant streak to the guy, um, that, um, you know, just, just personally, I find kind of off-putting, um, about him. Um, there was a, um, a number of examples in his life of a kind of callous disregard for people, the people who were closest to him. Um, his, his wife being an obvious example, um, his friend, Hocan Chevalier, uh, as, as another example, somebody he was sort of trying clumsily to protect, uh, but he ended up, um, you know, dragging through the mud with him. Um, his treatment of, of Gene Tatlock wasn't great. Uh, we, we don't get a ton of that in the Nolan film, but we do get glimpses of it. Um, she seems to come across as the uh, the more unstable one of the pair in the Nolan film. And I don't know if that's entirely fair it, when, when you when you get a broader picture of how he may have treated her. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, he, he certainly had his flaws. Um, and, uh, you know, his his conveniently apolitical stance was sometimes a little bit too convenient. The, the idea that he came from such a, a, a wealthy background that he was able to completely ignore the Great Depression. Um, and and then some of his other um, sort of self-serving comments about um, you know a kind of disavowal of responsibility for these for this uh, device that he created and saying well you got to you got to talk to the politicians you have to talk to the lawmakers but at the same time he would then turn around and say to the president I have blood on my hands so you know complicated figure um, flawed figure no question uh, things about him I don't like yeah absolutely um, yeah. Well, I appreciate the time he gave me to talk about um, Oppenheimer. <laughs> and I know he's talked a lot about the movie as well, too. But yeah, like I said, the public is going to see that and they're going to have questions probably about some things if they bother to look into it deeper. But I don't know. Maybe somebody will. I decided to a little bit. I'm probably going to do another deep dive on some of those eight uh, those hearings that are out there if there's plenty of documentation on it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the film, you know, a, a, as interesting as that film is, I, I don't think anybody should rely on one single film or one single book or one single document or one single anything uh, when it comes to a historical figure that they're interested in or that they seem uh, see as important. You know, if you come out of Nolan's film being really interested in Oppenheimer, there's a whole, there are whole shelves of books on the guy, biographies and histories, countless uh, amounts of work on him from every perspective and every angle. And um, there's there's tons more to learn all the time about uh, about the Manhattan Project and about this figure who is who is so central to it. The the fact that Nolan picks up on him and makes him kind of the star of the movie, um, you know, speaks to some of these things I've been saying about the the ways in which culture thinks about scientists. But there's so much more there. There's so much more behind the the figure of Oppenheimer. Interesting as he is, there's so much more behind it um, behind that figure to learn about. I think cultures has represented scientists as like nerdy um, for a very long time. But in this one, it seemed like they added more of this internal and existential kind of crisis that they're experiencing when it comes to especially devices of this magnitude as well, too, which is different. I haven't really seen that before. Usually it just kind of looks like they're just completing a task and then doing something else like that type. But this was a little bit more psychologically impacting when it came to 
you know, either it was camera shaking when he was experiencing his own existential crisis or the talks with Albert Einstein, um, where they're kind of just talking about what this is going to be and what's going to be the ramifications of it is is different than usually what you see in others. Yeah, and, and those moments of hallucination in the film where he's he's seeing things and imagining things and, and we see that represented visually on on the screen. I, I think those are those are moments like that where um uh you know we're 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 being offered um a glimpse into into his mind that is from the perspective of Christopher Nolan, the filmmaker, pure pure speculation, but it's really interesting and it's and it's really uh it, it's really potentially really telling of the kind of state of mind that he was in at those AEC hearings. And I'm thinking of the scene where he hallucinates Gene Tatlock in the room with him um, while his wife is sitting to the side listening to the testimony, right? Like this is this is obviously a, a fabrication. It's obviously a fantasy, this didn't really happen. Um, but it, it gives us a really interesting visual glimpse into the kind of conflicted um, mind that is behind the historical documents, the, the kind of thing that you can't access directly through the documents. Um, but it's something that somebody like Nolan can give us a suggestion of visually through through the film and and, and film. So film is great for that. Um, and, and again, you know, we just have to make sure that we don't rely on one single film or one single cinematic representation of a figure like Oppenheimer. And, you know, check out that BBC uh, thing from the 1980s. Uh, there's Fat Man and Little Boy starring Dwight Schultz and uh, Paul Newman. Uh, there's, there's you know, dozens of these representations of Oppenheimer um, uh, that, that are worth checking out for all of the different ways in which we try to represent visually something that happened long ago in the past and that we can never access directly. Well, where can people find your links, man? You've given me enough of your time. Uh, where can people find my links? Yeah, if you have uh, any websites, Twitter handles, anything like that. If you have any social or uh, Amazon, anything like that, I can I can link you to my my faculty page and I can link you to my my book. Okay, well I can put those in the description if you just wanted to say off if you had a Twitter or something like that. I I, I don't I'm not, don't really I'm not really a Twitter. Well, good person. for you because it's a <laughs> it's a it's a it's a hellscape there on that one. But I'll make sure I can link your faculty page and anything else in the description of this episode. And thanks everybody for listening. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode.